0: The time from last time today and half next week, we'll we'll see how that works, we'll see how that works. So there should be a new handout that starts with page 60, I believe, and then the the last one ends with 66. 66. And we're going to start at the very bottom of page 59, Was that, I think is where we left off. Does that sound right to everybody else? Let's go ahead and we'll, uh, we'll get started with a word of prayer, and then we will dive in. Let's pray together. Father, I'm grateful for your kindness to us just your sustaining grace helping us through the day allowing us to arrive here tonight safely Uh, we're grateful for the the great freedom and just openly being able to assemble to hear the scripture read in our own language uh, to be able to study in this warm and safe place we're thankful for your kindness Uh, we know that all the good gifts are ultimately possible because of christ and so we praise him tonight And we ask that you'd help us to use this time well so that he'd be honored. And uh, we ask for this in his name. Amen. All right, so at the bottom of page 15 or 59, we're going to start with chapter 15. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, we'll be in chapter 15, verse 1. Just to kind of refresh our memory where we were, we're looking at this large section that takes place between matthew's third discourse and his fourth discourse so roughly chapters 14 15 16 and 17 it seems like matthew likes to arrange things in sets of three so there's three sets of miracles and each set has three so three sets of three there in blue but mixed in is some confrontations some rejections by those who oppose him. And then uh, one of the central events in this section is going to be Peter's declaration that he truly is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's an easy Bible reference to remember because it's Matthew 16:16. Uh, in some of the Gospel accounts, it seems to be the very center. Matthew, it's not the center of the whole Gospel, but it's definitely very important to his story. All right. So last time, when we left off, Jesus, after being rejected in his hometown, after we're told that John um, uh, dies at the hands of Herod and his evil family, uh, Jesus feeds the crowd, 5,000 men plus women and children. He uh, walks on water, and for a brief moment, Peter, his disciple, walks on the water towards him. And then when we left off at the end of chapter 14, uh, he's there in this town of Gennesaret, and it says in verse 36 that people were begging him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. So looks like a large group of people just being healed by coming up and touching Jesus' robes. But then, as we pick up in chapter 15, we're going to again see some opposition from those who oppose him. This time in chapter 15, it's the Pharisees and the scribes who are accusing Jesus of breaking what they call here the tradition of the elders because he and his disciples are not washing their hands before they eat. And it's important to know this isn't talking about hygiene. You know, They don't, they don't know about germs. They're not thinking of washing hands in order to be healthy like we might tell a young child to wash their hands before they eat. This is a ceremonial cleansing that they do, and it's based not on the law of Moses, but on their own oral teaching. Okay, So the tradition of the elders, the top of the next page, uh, quoting there from my teacher, Dr. Compton, it refers to the oral teachings on the Old Testament law. So you can kind of think of this as, as going through levels and growing. They had the law of Moses, and then around the law of Moses they built oral traditions that over time they treated as if it was as authoritative as the law then later about 200 years after jesus it eventually starts being written down so today we the jewish people would refer to that as the mishnah their their oral traditions written down in book form around the year 300 and then they started writing commentaries on their oral traditions So that today, if you walk into the library there at the seminary where I work, one of the first things you see on a shelf, just by coincidence in the reference section, is a four-foot shelf of the Babylonian Talmud. So it's a whole big set of books, and it's their commentaries on their oral traditions. That's how, over time, this has continued to grow. In Jesus' day, it's still just oral. It's still just being spoken. Uh, But they think of it as binding. And Jesus' response to them is basically: you're accusing me of breaking something that's not even really the law, but you yourselves are guilty of breaking the actual law. So he's he's pointing out their p- hypocrisy. You see how that works? You're upset with me and my disciples because we're breaking a tradition, but you have no issue with actually breaking the law of Moses. And so point two. The, the law-breaking that he actually points to is their practice of, it says in verse 5, of devoting things to God. So instead of using their financial resources to help their father or their mother, they seem to have had a practice where during their lifetime, before they were even dead, they could say, well, at my death, this money is going to go to the temple. This money is going to be devoted to God. It's kind of a strange way of like a living will type thing, right? The money is already earmarked to go to the temple. So I can't give it to my children. I can't can't give it to my parents. I can't use it for people who have needs. But, and here was the catch, I think they were able to dip into it and use it for themselves. So even though they had devoted it to God, so to speak, it was actually still their money. No, No monies had transferred yet. And it was just their way of being greedy but looking pious at the same time and not obeying the commandment to honor your father and mother, to actually take care of those in your family who have needs. And so it's in the face of that kind of hypocrisy that Jesus then quotes from Isaiah 29:13. I'll put this up here on the screen because I think it's a fairly important verse. Uh, he says, these people... Honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You see that these people language, he's, he's quoting directly from Isaiah the prophet, and it's that distancing language we've talked about before. I say there in the notes that it'd be parallel to those places where he refers to them as this generation or this group of people or this family. So this is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, and he doesn't call them my people as he normally would. He calls them these people. He's he's holding them at arm length. And then the more startling thing is that Jesus goes on to say, Isaiah prophesied about you. So these people didn't just include people all the way back in the Old Testament in the 700s in Isaiah's day but it also included people who were still alive and confronting Jesus in his day. So this is one evil family that stretches over multiple generations over time. And what ties them all together is their hypocrisy, that they're only concerned about an exterior appearance of devotion to God, but they actually have hearts that Jesus says are far from him. Jesus goes on there, point four, to explain that it's not outward actions, including what is put into your mouth, that defiles a person. So they would go through great pains to wash themselves regularly with a lot of water. We don't know everything that happened custom-wise, but there's a lot of hints that they had multiple washings or baptisms where they would actually dunk themselves in water. For these purposes, they would keep water in their homes or have pools that were accessible to them. And the whole idea, again, is not hy- hygiene. It's about ceremonial cleanliness, that they had to make sure that they weren't defiled so that they could properly worship God. And Jesus' point was it isn't about things on the outside or even things that you put into your mouth that make you defiled. Our defilement as humans, as descendants of Adam, comes from within. We already came into this world defiled. We were born with it. And it's from our own hearts that all of these sins that Jesus lists in this passage actually come from. So then they go away. Verse 12 there, the disciples come up, and it's, it's almost humorous, right? They ask Jesus, well, don't you know that the Pharisees were actually upset? They were offended at what you said to them. Um... It almost feels like a little bit of humor on the part of Matthew's part to include that with hindsight. So I don't think Jesus was necessarily um, concerned about what the Pharisees thought. Jesus says here, flipping the page, that there are plants that have not been planted by the Father. Let me just read verse 13. He says, Every plant that my Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Verse 14, Leave them, they are blind guides. If the blind lead the bo- blind, both will fall into a pit. It's just another way of referring to the fact that they're not truly born again. These, aren't religious, um, these religious people are not actually regenerate. They claim to be religious leaders who can guide other people, but that doesn't work if they themselves are blind. They're not leading people to the true God, because they can't actually see him themselves. So Jesus compares them to a blind guy, that's blind guide that's just going to lead others to a pit. That whole language there, I say in that opening paragraph on page 61 about them being a plant, Leave them alone? I think you can't help, but remember Matthew 13 in the parables. Remember the man who has the field, and they sow wheat? And during the night, the enemy comes in and sows weeds. And then the servants come, and the next day they say, hey, there's some, some weeds here. Should we pull them out? And what does the master say? He says, leave them alone. It's the, it's the same expression. So I think we're supposed to think of those two stories in parallel fashion. When we were in Matthew 13, it was very clear that those, those weeds, they're not actually people who are truly part of God's family. Because at the harvest time, at the final judgment, what happens to them? They get gathered up and put into the fire, right? Into the furnace. Well, now Jesus is connecting those enemies that he talked about in chapter 13 with these religious leaders who are confronting them. They're so concerned about their ceremonial cleanliness, but they actually have hearts that are far from him. So that's the confrontation. And then it seems like Matthew, again, follows this up with a set of three parables, all right? There's going to be the healing of the Syrophoenician girl. There's going to be the healing of many Gentiles on a mountain. And then there's going to be the feeding of a crowd that has at least 4,000 men. I think the important thing that ties these all together is that they're taking place in Gentile territory. So if we zoom in on northern section of Israel of Palestine so right in the middle there is the Sea of Galilee purple is Galilee the province that Jesus grows up in so first he's going to go up here it says in the Bible to the the region of Tyre and Sidon so probably not to the cities themselves but in the general area so he's up in Gentile territory on the coast that's where he's going to meet this Canaanite woman that Matthew calls her Then he's going to be back down here on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in the area that they call the Decapolis or the Ten Cities, and that's where his feeding of the 4,000 is going to take place. And then finally, he's going to be up here in the north when we finish this section next time, probably, in the city of Caesarea Philippi at the foothills of Mount Hermon, way up into the north. But what has what all three of these areas have in common, and I think what holds these stories together is that they have to do with Gentiles, which I think is especially relevant for us tonight, right? That the, the king of the Jews who came to save his people from their sins has more than enough grace left over to also save Gentiles, like most of us here tonight. So let's just walk through these, these three stories. So the... The first one has to do with this Gentile woman in verses 21 through 28. Look at verse 22. What's she called? She's not called a Syrophoenician. She's called a what? She's called a Canaanite. As you can probably imagine, that isn't how she refers to herself. She wouldn't have introduced herself as, Hi, I'm a Canaanite. Those people didn't use that name for themselves at this time. As far as we know... This is Matthew deliberately connecting her with the people who used to live in this area. So people who live in an area over centuries, their names can change, just like place names change around us where we live. Same people, same bloodline, same ethnicity, but names change. So they would have been called Phoenicians or something in Greek that's equivalent to that. But Matthew is reminding us of the ancient enemies of Israel. The people who lived in that area weren't the friends of Israel. These were the Canaanites, the people who originally were pushed out of the promised land, for the most part, uh, judged by God and, f- and fell underneath the sword during the conquest. So it's a, that sets you up for the story. This woman who comes, who's asking Jesus for mercy, she says in verse 22, Lord, Son of David, which is just another way of saying Messiah, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. We're probably familiar with the story, right? Jesus first reminds her of the priority that he has to the Jewish people. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And uh, the woman persists, she kneels before him, Lord, help me, she says again. And our Lord Jesus, he replies, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. He seems to be trying to get a certain response from her, okay? And she says in verse 27, the NIV says, yes, it is, Lord. The NIV is my favorite go-to translation, but every once in a while, I, I do differ. So most of our English translations just have, yes, Lord. When you say, yes, it is, Lord, that sounds a little bit like she's arguing with him. Like, you know, if I said I wanted my daughter to not do something, and she said, yes, I am going to do it, or I say, you know, this is wrong, and she says, no, it's not, or I, sh- you know, and we're going back and forth. It sounds like a, almost a snotty response. Yes, it is, Lord. But I think actually she's saying, yes, Lord. Yes, it is, you say. It, yes, it is, you say. yes, I agree with you. <laughs> she's, she's agreeing with the Savior. She agrees with him, that she has no right, she has no claim, to the salvation that's come to the Jewish people. But, she says, and this is the important part, she says, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now, the word for crumbs isn't the same word that showed up at the end of the feeding of the 5,000. It is a different word, but I think it's the same idea, right? If we've been reading Matthew straight through, maybe if we hadn't taken a break for a snow day, right, and it was fresh in our mind, we would remember that Jesus has just performed a miracle where there were lots of crumbs left over. There were 12 basketfuls of food. So it's not a question of can Jesus save her? Is he able? That's not a question. It's just a matter, does he want to? And he makes it clear he does want to. I think he just wanted her to vocalize faith, trust, and a desire to receive nothing but grace. This is pure grace, right? I just want the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. I'll stop there just for a second. Any, any questions there about the, the healing of her daughter? That's a hard story sometimes with people first time maybe a a new Christian or you know someone's going through the scriptures for the first time that'd be one to slow down and walk through with them Uh, if this was the only view of Jesus we ever had we might come to the wrong opinion of his his demeanor his actions but you have to put what he says here next to everything else that scripture reveals about him this is not an uncaring person this is a kind person this is a humble person But he is her creator. He is still her king. And he has the right to expect certain responses from her. And we know from earlier in this story, and it's going to happen again with Peter, that the only reason she can say this is because God's been good to her. God has changed her heart. She's had things revealed to her by the Father. So it's a great story of of God's grace. All right? Then it says there in verse 29 that he leaves, he walks along the Sea of Galilee. So this is where I think he's, he's traveling down south along the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, still staying in Gentile territory. Uh, verse 31, it talks about lots of different types of ailments being healed and the people praising the God of Israel. So again, I think these are Gentiles who were praising the God of Israel because they have been healed by Israel's Messiah. And then we have the the feeding of the 4,000. And I've talked about this a little bit last time, but again, I think when you finish the feeding of the 5,000, you're clearly supposed to connect it with Moses, the one who gave the people bread in the wilderness. It's It's a very Jewish miracle. The only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. In the Gospel of John, he makes a big point of saying it's happening at Passover time when they're thinking about the exodus. But when you're left with that story at the end of it, you might still be thinking, well, well, but what about the Gentiles? Is there any provision for them? And I think that's where the feeding of the 4,000 comes in. That's why there's two miracles that are so similar. I think the first one is with the Jewish people but then he performs virtually the same miracle with just a few different details in Gentile territory on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And he provides food from heaven for this crowd that includes 4,000 Gentile men plus women and children. Okay. Then we go back to chapter 16, verses 1 through 12, the next section, after we've had our set of three miracles... Now we again get opposition. So see how this keeps going back and forth? We get some good responses to Jesus, uh, responses that you and I should follow, but then we're also reminded that the world Jesus lives in and the world that now we live in is a world where lots of people do still reject him, right? So it's a mixed response. This time it's the Sadducees. So they pop into the... So the last one was the Pharisees and scribes, right? Now it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They haven't been mentioned for a while. We haven't talked too much about the Sadducees, but what we know from history is that they and the Pharisees don't always get along with each other. They actually have theological differences. Where the Pharisees believed more in resurrection, angels, a spirit world, the Sadducees seemed to have been more interested in the here and now the material world, the things that you could see and touch. They seem to have had power in Jerusalem associated with the temple, maybe a little bit more friendly with the Herodians and the Pharisees. The two groups of people don't necessarily like each other, but they have one thing in common. They both don't like Jesus. Okay? So I think that's why Matthew is bringing them together to show this united opposition okay, against Jesus. This time, they're upset with him. And they're asking him for a sign. So flipping the page. This isn't the first time this has happened. I'll just read a little bit there at the top of page 63. Again, from Dr. Compton. You remember earlier in the story of Matthew last semester when they'd asked for a sign and he told them that they were only going to receive the sign of what? Jonah, Jonah, right? Only going to receive the sign of Jonah, which is which is, in a sense, a judgment, right? Because the sign of Jonah comes later, and it seems, based on things that, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, that it was only a limited group of people that got to see our risen Lord. He didn't just widely appear to all of his enemies as he is now during his earthly ministry. So the sign of Jonah kind of functions like the sign given to Uzziah in Isaiah's day of the sign of the virgin, It's a sign that comes in the future, and you don't actually get to see it because of your unbelief. But here they're asking for a sign. So Dr. Compton says, once again, Matthew records the Jewish elders coming to Jesus and asking for a sign. The repetition of their request represents the spiritual hardness of their hearts. Jesus was continually performing miracles. Just think of everything we've talked about over the last few weeks, everything that he's done. He didn't do this in a secret corner, right? These were very public. We just read an instance where he was in an area and lots of people were coming up and touching his clothing and immediately being healed. So when they come and ask for a sign, that's not coming from a good place in their heart. They're actually showing their unbelief because he's given them more than enough um, signs. So yet none of this had penetrated their heart. So how does Jesus respond to that? Well, first, he notes that his enemies here are very good at interpreting signs in the sky to predict the coming weather. So remember, he compares this to the way that they'll see uh, different colors in the sky. So I'll pick up in chapter 16, verse 2. He says, When evening comes, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning... Today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. So I have a little quote there from Blomberg that he brought my attention to this. I hadn't thought about it before, but we actually still have a a rhyme or a proverb today that we use that has the exact same meaning. So we say red sky at morning, sailors take warning, red sky at night, sailors delight, right? So the exact same proverb that we still repeat today, they had their own version of it back there in the first century. And Jesus says, well, this works because you're very good at paying attention to the sky and being able to interpret what the season is, okay? I think the key thing is there, the interpretation of seasons or weather because his point is I've been with you and I've performed all kinds of signs and it should tell you what season it is. The season would be, if you think through the story of Matthew, the nearness of the kingdom, the eminency of the kingdom. They had waited their whole life for a king to show up and to establish a good kingdom. And now the king has been born, and he's validating himself through miracles. They should be able to see that this whole kingdom program is rolling, and inevitably is going to come to its full fulfillment but yet they can't interpret the signs, not because they have an intellectual problem, not because Jesus hasn't been open enough about it. It's a moral problem. It's a heart problem. It's the same problem that causes our friends and neighbors and loved ones to reject the gospel. That's why we we pray for people, because only God can change a human heart. So he scolds his enemies for not being able to discern the signs associated with his ministry, He calls them a wicked generation, there, point five. Again, that's the word that I think would be better translated as family. And as we know, you don't like to be called the wicked generation or family in Matthew. It's not a good thing. And then one more time, he points to the sign of Jonah. But now, right after the Pharisees and the scribes have been unwilling to accept Jesus' true identity, We have here in the heart of this section, Peter. He's speaking up as the leader of the 12, and he's going to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So just to remind ourselves of what Matthew, I think, is doing in this section, one of the things, at least, is he's emphasizing Jesus' true identity and also our connection to him as his true family. So... We're going to receive what Jesus deserves. We're going to receive the blessings that he's earned that are due him, right? We're going to be joint heirs, to use one of Paul's expressions. So he's not really just a carpenter's son, is he? As he was said in 1355. And when we get to the end of the section, he isn't just a regular tax-paying Joe, right? He isn't just a regular man. The right answer is in the middle three times. It was first... When he walked on water, truly you are the Son of God. Now it's Peter saying you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then in the next chapter, when we come back next week, it's going to be God himself, the ultimate witness, saying from heaven, this is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. I think the, the setting is significant. So notice that it says that Jesus, he asks his disciples this question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He asks it in the region of Caesarea Philippi. We already talked about how that's far to the north, right at the foothills of Mount Hermon. Uh, Some of the things that we know about it, it was a center of paganism. So the people of that area worshiped the the deity Pan, the god of the woods that they believed lived in a cave there nearby. But that had been going on for a long time, but more recently, uh, Herod the Great had built a large white marbled temple to Caesar Augustus, who's now dead, but still being worshipped as if he was a god. So you've got to think about it. Here in this stronghold of paganism, where they worship a god who isn't really a god, who doesn't even exist, Pan, and now they're worshipping a new god who's a dead king, Jesus is being confessed as the son of the living God. You see the difference, the contrast? It's not a dead God that we go to worship, someone who just lives somewhere in a cave or is confined to a white marble temple, but it's the maker of heaven and earth. And because we're part of his family, I think this is where the story goes, we also have the hope of living. We also will be able to escape death. So flipping the page, page 64... There's lots in this little section here. So I'll I'll slow down and try to look at my notes a little bit more carefully. First of all, you know, Peter makes this great confession. And we're reminded here by Jesus that this isn't just because Peter's smarter than the rest of the people out there. You know, the rest of the people are saying things like, well, he must be John the Baptist. He must be Elijah. Other people thought he was Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Peter truly knows who he is, but Jesus says to him in verse 17, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. This isn't just something that you came through through normal human processes. Which is a key thing for us to remember in our evangelism, isn't it? That the key isn't just having the, a, a nice answer to the person's question. Or finding the next book that will stump them, right? With all of their criticisms. The only thing that will really change their heart is God. And the only means that he uses is just our faithful preaching of the gospel, sharing the gospel, talking about the gospel. So what, 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 you know, I, sometimes I come home and I'll talk to my wife about certain situations that I've been in. And you think, yeah, what will ever change that person? You know, why don't they get it? You ever said that to yourself? Just why don't they get it? You know, it seems so clear to us. Why don't they see it? And you always just have to keep reminding yourself of the basics. Go back to Christianity 101. You pray for people, and you tell them about Jesus. And those are the means that the Creator has uh, ordained for changing human hearts. And Peter, with all of his flaws, right, he's not a finished product, but he's not what he used to be. At some point in his life, he has been born again, and he has now accepted this truth about jesus so it's at this point that jesus gives him a nickname so this isn't in the notes but i probably should have added it you know sometimes people wonder well, what about peter where does that come from he seems to have had simon as his birth name so he's got a good jewish name probably named after simeon one of the sons of jacob but at this point he gets a second name and it's peter which just means rock So his nickname for the rest of his life among Christians is going to be Rock. Not like the actor on TV, but a different kind of Rock, right? Not the Rock. Or his Aramaic equivalent would have been Cephas. Because remember, they speak Aramaic as their everyday language. So the Greek version would have been something like Peter. The Aramaic version would have been something like Cephas. And we've English-sized both of those, but you know what I mean, right? That's why he goes by those names, even though... His mom, when he was a little boy, would have called him Simon. But Jesus has a play on words, right? He says, you are a rock, you are Peter, and on this rock. And that rock, I think, and this is controversial, I think the rock is Peter himself. But that doesn't lead to the interpretation that we're familiar with from the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church would point to this verse, that Peter is a rock on which the church is built, and from that, they determined that he had some special level among all other Christians, that he was the first bishop, so to speak, or the first pope, from which all other popes or bishops have succeeded. But I just want to point you to a couple of things here. I got these from Carson's commentary in the middle of paragraph three, just to notice that I think Peter here is just being used as a representative of the Apostles. Uh, I think he is a leader, a natural leader, maybe older than the rest of them. Remember, he's the one that has a a mother-in-law, so that means he has a wife, where a lot of the other ones could have been as young as teenagers. But he's not infallible, and he's certainly not a pope. So I think he's just being used as a representative. So first of all, in Acts 8, he could be sent by other apostles. So we have an example where he's being sent by someone. Acts chapter 11, we're... We're told that he was held accountable by the church. And then probably the most striking example you could go to is in Galatians chapter 2, where Paul corrects him or rebukes him. So Peter isn't like a head above everybody else. But I think Jesus refers to him as the rock on which the church is built because he and the other apostles, that's the, the key there, he and the other apostles will be the foundation to this new church. So another passage that you could go to would be Ephesians 2.20, where it talks about the apostles being a foundation on which this new community that we call the church is being built. This is the first time that this word appears in the New Testament. This is where I got our title for our class. We're calling it Matthew, the king and his new community. Because while the king is gone, so to speak, he is still here with us, right? But he is bodily gone. He is seated at the right hand of the Father from where he is reigning, waiting to someday make his enemies his footstools, as Psalm 110 says. But in the meantime, we're his body here on earth. We represent him. We're his community. We're his people. We're his family. All of those different metaphors. And this family is going to be built on the teaching of the apostles. And this teaching he's going to go on to say is actually going to determine who enters and who doesn't enter this coming kingdom. So I think there's three difficult things in this passage. That's the first one. I'll stop there. Any questions about, about Peter and the rock? Yes. Yeah. That's a pretty common uh, view among Protestants. And I think it's a reaction to the Catholic view. I just wonder if we ever would have come up with that view if we hadn't been responding to the Roman Catholic view. Because if you just look at the verse by itself, and you didn't have any of that other baggage in the back of your mind, it's very clear that Peter's name means rock. That's what it means. And so when he says, I'm reading from verse 18, I'll just substitute rock for Peter. He says, and I tell you, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. The only thing that he changes is that Peter, when he calls him a rock, he has to use the masculine form because he's a man, and men have masculine names in the New Testament. But the word for rock is a feminine concept. In English, we don't do masculine and feminine nouns but other languages, if you guys know other languages, they do do that. It's a, it's a common thing in other languages. So that's the only difference. He uses rock in a masculine form, and then he uses rock in a feminine form. Otherwise, it's exactly the same word. And it's just very hard for me to see, with that tight connection, that you could come to any other conclusion than that he's talking about Peter himself and not his confession. Any other questions? Yes. So in other verses we find where Jesus is the foundation. And here it's saying Jesus. Yeah, so let's go to Ephesians chapter two, verse twenty. Usually when they talk about the church, the, the metaphor that's applied to Jesus is that he's the head. So we talk about him as the head of the church, the leader, the king, so to speak. But when he talks about the foundation, so this is how Paul puts it in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians 2.20, I'll just back up one verse. So he says, Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. So here, here he's talking about how we as Gentiles in this new community, this church that's being built, we're not strangers anymore. We actually are sharing with the Jewish Christians in their Messiah. And we're also members of his household. So again, this is where I see like the family idea. A church is just a family. It's a big family that extends over the whole earth, but it is represented in local assemblies like this one here in Trenton. And he says in verse 20, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So here the metaphor isn't ahead, but it's the foundation by the prophets and the apostles. And then Jesus is the cornerstone that holds it together. So, another place you could go to is. So I think when the the apostles go out and teach, they're teaching as Jesus's representatives. When they write scripture, they're writing God's words. So I don't I don't in my mind I don't have to make a distinction between Jesus's teaching and their teaching because. Their teaching is Jesus' teaching. They, they represent Jesus. That's part of what it means to be an apostle, is you're being a representative for another person who's not there, and so you speak with their authority as if you were them. And so I don't think we have to make a distinction between whether it's built on Jesus or whether it's built on the apostles. I think it's two ways of looking at the same thing. But this image, this meta- it's a metaphor, right? It's a metaphor, but a metaphor still has meaning it shows up in John's vision of the New Jerusalem that comes down from heaven. Because remember, he says the New Jerusalem has 12 foundation stones, and on those foundation stones are the names of the apostles. So that would be another place that I would connect with Matthew 16. So the, what's going to happen is Jesus is going to go back to heaven. He's, after his death and resurrection, he's going to return to heaven. He's going to leave behind this small family of people who represent him. They start out pretty small, right? A little group huddled in the upper room, right, on the day of Pentecost, worried that they're also going to die. But there's going to be men who are gifted in that group, 11, and then they choose one as their, a replacement, so there's 12. And then they later they add others. And they're going to go out as prophets and able to represent and speak for Jesus, giving us our New Testament scriptures and laying the foundation for what we still are seeing today that's growing around this world. So we're, we're here tonight studying Matthew, one of the apostles, because he was one of the foundations that God used. And I think Peter is just being addressed as representative of all of them. Yep. <coughs> when I was in the Catholic Church, I learned that verse, but it also went on to um, King me? I can't hear you. No matter what happens, it's going to stand. That does lead us to the, the second difficult point, right? What does he mean by the gates of hell? Are we ready to go there to tackle that? Well, when, he, when I learn it, yeah. i telling you. <laughs> yeah. No, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. you,
1: you can, you can uh, stone the outside. No, that's right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't do stoning anymore. Yeah. Maybe a lynch deck yeah. anyway. Mm-hmm. coming against the church like what we have now uh, the world that is against the church all these people that are against christianity right it's like the forces of hell yeah yeah and it that is a powerful picture i understand it sometimes when i think about that i think of you know a movie like i like the like uh like the fantasy movies a hobbit movie or something you know the evil castle with the big dark gate and the dark gate swings open and this evil army comes out, right? And so I think sometimes that's how we picture like hordes of hell or an army of hell that opens up gates. But the problem is that Jesus doesn't actually say hell, right? He's speaking in another language. That's why in our NIV, we've translated it how? We've translated it Hades. So he's referring to the realm of the dead, not necessarily a place where only the unsaved go. And definitely in their minds in the first century, they wouldn't have been thinking of a place where Satan lives. So that's not a concept that they have. We have that concept today. The hell is kind of like Satan's home. He's there with his little pitchfork, right? But, I mean, if you read the Old Testament, where's Satan? He's in God's throne room talking to him, right, in the book of Job. So Hades is just the place that people go when they die, And the gates don't keep people out, they keep people in. Hell swallows up, I mean, Hades, the place of the dead, swallows us all up. Unless Jesus Christ returns from us in the rapture, we all will go to the place of the dead, so to speak. We all will go where dead people go. But for us, and I think this is Jesus' point, we can't be kept in. There aren't gates that are able to keep this church in. This new community that's here represented in Trenton tonight, but it's also represented all over this world, this global family that represents Jesus, we, because Jesus has overcome death, will also not be able to be kept in by Hades. So it actually says there, if you look, he says, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. It's the church. I think that's pretty clear. So he's talking about a group of people who will enter the realm of dead, but they won't stay there. So let me just show you a couple other places that this same expression shows up. Because remember, we have to, when we, when we interpret Scripture, we always have to try to listen to it and hear it the way they would have heard it in their day. That's hard for us, right? Because we live 2,000 years later in a different time, in a different place, with a different language. But we have to, as, as, to the degree that we're able, we have to put ourselves in their shoes and hear it the way they would have heard it. And So like one passage where this exact same phrase shows up in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So this is where Hezekiah is speaking. Remember, Hezekiah almost died and then he, he prayed for mercy and he was healed. And he, this is Hezekiah speaking. He said, I said, in the prime of my life, must I go through the gates of death and be robbed of the rest of my years, so see, he's he's not talking about an army that comes out of hell and attacks him. He's talking about a place that he goes, a place that he goes when he dies, and he knows if I go there, I don't come back. Nobody comes back from death because there's gates; they keep you in. You can't escape. Okay. The next one, this isn't from the Bible. This isn't scripture, but this is from a. a piece of jewish literature that was written from about a hundred years before matthew so this would have been written in the first century bc it's called the wisdom of solomon it's probably written by a religious jewish person perhaps a pharisee or at least someone who thinks like a pharisee so a religious jewish person who believes in the resurrection and he's saying this about god so god's the one being redressed as you he says for you have power over life and death you lead mortals down to the gates of Hades and back again. You see that? So the first one is from Isaiah. Isaiah says, you know, if you go to Hades, you don't come back. Here, this person later is talking about the fact that, well, God does have the power to bring people back. You could go through the gates of Hades and then you could come back again. And you know that's what he means because he goes on and he says, a person in wickedness kills another but cannot bring back the departed spirit or set free the imprisoned soul. But you think ahead at the rest of the story, Jesus can overcome death, right? Jesus is our trailblazer. He's our pioneer. We're going to follow in his coattails. He went through death. He went to the realm of death. And those gates could not hold him in, right? They could not overcome him. And so the promise here to Peter and everyone who follows Peter's teaching, the gospel, is that you also will not be overcome by the gates of death. This is how Peter himself will later put it. He's talking at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 about Jesus. He says, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then just a few verses later, verse 31, he says, He was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. That's the great truth from this passage. That there's there's a church, a community, a family that's being built. And it's being built on the teaching that the apostles gave us, the New Testament. The apostles and the prophets. Peter just being representative of all of them. And that group of people, they're going to have to follow their Lord through very difficult times. He never promised us that this age that we live in would be easy. He actually told us, remember back in chapter 10, that it's enough for us if we're just like Him. If we get treated like He was in the world, that should be good enough for us. And eventually, we will have to go through death in some way, Just like he went through death. Not the same death, but we will go through death unless the rapture comes from us. But just like him, see the pattern here? Just like him, death will not overcome us. There's not gates on Hades that are strong enough to keep God from opening them and grabbing you out. If you're trusting in the gospel message, what the New Testament teaches you about Jesus Christ, your Lord. And I think we know that this is all about the gospel and the teaching of the apostles by how Jesus ends this section. So look at verse 19. So this is the third hard thing. So the first one is, you know, what is this rock? The second one is, what does he mean by the gates of Hades? I think the third one is, what does he mean by the keys of the kingdom? Now, if I just told you I was giving you keys to something, I mean, what does that immediately bring to mind? It opens, right? You use keys to open a door. What do you think they used keys for in the first century? To open doors, right? Just, it, it was a trick question. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, you could lock a door to keep people out. But yeah, it does say here there's both, right? So that is a good point. Because he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he just ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. And then he's going to immediately, we'll pick up this next time, he's going to immediately going to predict his death again. So the connection here, remember he is the son of the living God. It's confessed in a place where they're worshiping dead gods. He himself has said now once, and he's going to say it a second time, he's going to die but that shouldn't cause his disciples to fear because there is going to be a kingdom someday. So I've said many times that Jesus is exactly the kind of Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. He just isn't that Messiah yet because he hasn't accomplished everything yet. We're still waiting for him to accomplish, to bring in a good kingdom that will last forever. And when we get into that kingdom, there is gates, so to speak. So it's a metaphor again. There's some people who get to go in and there's some people who can't. They're prevented. He already talked about this in Matthew chapter 7. Remember the end of the Sermon on the Mount? There's a narrow gate. There's a narrow way. There's people who are religious, who've done great things in His name, who Jesus, or the, Jesus is going to look at and say, I never knew you. There's going to be people who are prevented. But what's going to be the means? What's going to be the tool or the instrument that God uses for sorting people out, creating some people who are part of this church that enter the kingdom and create some people who are not, it's going to be the, the preaching of the gospel. So I think when he refers to the apostles, Peter here being the representative, having the keys of the kingdom, I think he's referring to the preaching of the gospel through our, through our churches. That's not immediately clear. But I think it can be inferred from the rest of the passage. Keys are just a metaphor for letting people in a door. That's what you use for keys for. And the way that the apostles let people in the door is by sharing the gospel with them. Which is the same way that we're doing it today. If we want to see people enter the door into Jesus' coming kingdom, then they only do that through us sharing the gospel with them. When we get to chapter 18, um, Jesus is going to use the same metaphor there. And there, in that context, he seems to use it for church discipline. So we'll we'll come back to this topic because there he seems to be saying there's people that could be in the assembly who don't belong. And so there you exercise this key function by actually removing people from the assembly. You're you're winnowing them out. But I think the metaphor is still similar. All right. So when we come back next time, we'll pick up Bottom of page 64. Any, any questions? Yes. So what does it mean, chapter 16, verse 17, Simon, son of Jonah? Why is it called the son of Jonah? Uh, that's, just his, that's just his given name. His father's name would have been Jonah. Okay, so there's no connection to... Him. I don't think so. Okay. I mean, it is very close to when he's just referred to Jonah, but um, if anything, I think it just highlights the fact that Simon is his given name. Right, so the, the, it seems to be the language implies that when the, the apostles lose somebody, they're just confirming what's already taken place in heaven. So I think it reminds us of where our salvation comes from. So if the apostles preach and they see someone get saved, or if they preach and they see someone reject, in a sense, they've been using keys to let people in and out But Jesus says it that way to remind us that actually it's just a decision that was already made in heaven that's being worked out here on earth. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we're just instruments. We're just tools in the hands of the one who actually is in control of all things. But it ends on a positive note. Um, It ends on a positive note that, that we will someday unless the Lord returns, and He could return today, we will enter the realm of the dead. Now, we have a little bit more revelation than they do, because Paul says that for us, the realm of the dead will be absent from the body, present with the Lord, right? So it's not some gloomy place where we're not sure what's going to happen to us. But we will be there, immaterial, it seems, waiting for the resurrection. But the resurrection will take place for us because it took place for Jesus. So, That's why I like the picture that Pastor Larry chose for our slides. You know, it's got the the big chest piece, the king, and then it's got the little pawn who's just looking at him, right? Following his shadow because Jesus is the king and we are just his foot soldiers, right? We're his people, his body, his family, but we are not only looking at him and following him, but we will also receive everything that he has earned. We will... Will share in his resurrection and in his kingdom. All right. So, Lord willing, we'll come back next week and we'll uh, pick up there at the bottom of page 64. We'll see you then.